Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. everybody and I will set tears pouring from your eyes no one will rest poisoned arrows will strike everyone fevers will throw down the proud and incurable disease will strike like lightning for the Almighty has said I shall wipe man whom I created off the face of the earth for three horrifying years between 1348 and 1350 The Black Death pushed medieval man to the brink of an apocalypse. The living expected only death. Everywhere, graveyards were choked with corpses. The scale of death persuaded those who lived, weeping and lamenting through the bitter events, that the last judgment had come. It was a world without hope, seemingly abandoned by God. From Italy to Ireland, Europe lost nearly half its population. 20 million died. In the crisis, every part of medieval society was strained to breaking point. Medicine failed the sick. Violent and macabre religious cults appeared. A morality collapsed as men turned on each other in brutal acts of cruelty. No one knew who or what would follow. The Antichrist? The end of the world. But some survived to chronicle the despair. Writers, doctors, lawyers, priests. Unique eyewitnesses from death's front line. And their extraordinary words offer us intimate, shocking and surprising windows on the worst catastrophe in the whole history of Europe. For despite the trauma, the continent was not plunged into a new dark age. The gradual reawakening of Europe was in fact seeded in the horror and tragedy of the Black Death.
In the mid-14th century, Europe was not the dark continent so often lampooned by history. It was well populated, sophisticated, mobile and devout. People are moving, there are traders, there are merchants, there are pilgrims, there are soldiers, there are bureaucrats, there are people on every imaginable kind of business on the road moving about this society. Nowhere was richer or busier with trade and commerce than the ports and cities of northern Italy. Florence, with a population of over 100,000, was said to resemble a ripe pomegranate, a dense anthill of human contact, merchants and peasants, rich and poor, business and pleasure. The population was tremendous, and the cities were big, crowded, but they were also very wealthy places to live, and so attracting lots of people. So in a sense, it's the sort of place that a, a disease is going to love. Into this medieval melting pot, in the autumn of 1347, stole a horrifying and mysterious disease. It was borne by sailors returning from the Black Sea in the east, the pestilence already in their blood and on their breath. At first, the citizens had no idea of the scale of the horror that would hit them. The disease that later became known as the Black Death would threaten every part of medieval life, society, religion, feudalism, family. In the town of Piacenza, a lawyer, Gabriel de Musis, recorded the arrival of the disease. I have been urged to write what happened here. Every city, every settlement, every place was poisoned by the contagious pestilence. When one person had contracted the illness, he poisoned his whole family and those preparing to bury the dead were seized by death in the same way. Thus, death entered through the windows. And as cities and towns were devastated, the survivors mourned their dead kin. Italy was the front line of a bewildering epidemic. No one was prepared for the speed and horror of the disease. People became sick with a flu-like fever and began vomiting. In their necks, armpits and groin, pus-filled swellings or buboes appeared. And on the skin, internal hemorrhaging produced purple and black blotches. Death followed within a week from a pneumonia-like flooding of the lungs. In a matter of two, three months, 20% of your population is just a pile of corpses. So being stunned, I think, is probably the most obvious reaction they must have had, as well as being petrified and having no sense of what to do to make it stop. Though there were no known cures, many doctors tried their best. Gentile da Foligno was among them. Chief physician at the University of Perugia, he began to realize just how unstoppable the disease was. This pestilence, as the Pisans call it, or epidemic, or whatever else you wish to call it, is more awful than anything ever seen before. No disease of comparative malignancy has ever been witnessed. Nevertheless, 
Terrified, wealthy citizens grasped at any hope, seeking to buy their way to medical salvation. The immediate and particular cause is a certain poisonous material which is generated from the heart and the lungs. My job as physician is not to worry about the heavens, but to concentrate on the symptoms of the sick and to do what I can for them. Gentile advised people to eat lettuce and to alternate their sleep on the left and right side so as to keep the heat of the liver steady. Lying on one's back can be disastrous. Astonishingly, to those with advanced symptoms, he applied a paste of gum resin, the roots of white lilies, and dried human excrement. It was a form of using the human body to help itself, blood or excrement or other waste products, which if, for instance, they were treated by distillation or something like that, might yield some magic, in inverted commas, remedy that might be effective. But such treatments were rooted in the medieval past, and without exception, they failed. Just as the physician Gentile da Foligno failed, on the 18th of June, 1348, the pestilence added his name to the roll call of death. As people realized the disease could not be cured, they were left with only their faith in God and the efforts of the church. When one person lay sick in a house, no one would come near. Even dear friends would hide themselves away, weeping. The physician would not visit. The priest, panic-stricken, administered the sacraments with fear and trembling. No one knew what to do. Religion was no shield against the disease. The clergymen who braved the dying to administer their last rites often fell victim themselves. In Piacenza, the Black Death ripped through the religious orders. More than 60 priests died. Fear was compounded by ignorance. Some believed the disease was transmitted by sight. Others that merely thinking about it would bring death. Italian society faced real jeopardy. The crisis was captured by the pen of Giovanni Boccaccio, this Florentine writer now stepped forward as the Black Death's most lucid and startling witness. Such terror was struck into the hearts of men and women by this calamity, and that brother abandoned brother, and the uncle his nephew, and the sister her brother, and very often the wife her husband. But what was even worse, and quite incredible, was that fathers and mothers refused to see and tend their sick children as if they had not been theirs. Bewildered and terrified, with neither defense nor understanding, families and friends shunned each other. Almost all adopted the same cruel policy, which was to avoid entirely the sick and everything belonging to them. By so doing, each thought he would secure his own safety. People in 1348 really thought the apocalypse was nigh. Disaster was upon them, and there seemed to be nothing you could do about it. There'd be nothing like this before on this scale. And how to react, how to behave, they just didn't know. 
as the bonds of society fractured, the rhythms of medieval life began to unravel. Harvests went ungathered, livestock untended. In the city of Siena, civil courts were closed and building work on the cathedral halted. Work never resumed, and the great nave remains unfinished today. As local leaders died, city life stopped. The scale of the disaster was becoming clear. In addition to lots of people being ill and dying, you now had nothing working properly. The bodies weren't being removed. Sanitation, to the extent that it existed, completely collapsed. Food wasn't being made. Bread wasn't being baked. So you had, in addition to disease, famine. And, and the general problems of keeping some sort of order. In this suffering and misery of our city, the authority of human and divine laws almost disappeared. For like other men, the ministers and the executives of the laws were all dead, or sick, or shut up with their families, so that no duties were carried out. Every man was therefore able to do as he pleased. In a world seemingly abandoned by God, no one expected to live. Many behaved as if each day would be their last. Italian society was in moral meltdown. <laughs> they thought the sure cure for the pestilence was to go about amusing themselves, satisfying every bestial appetite that they could. They spent day and night going from tavern to tavern, drinking immoderately, or went freely into other people's houses doing as they pleased. This they were able to do because many had abandoned their homes so that many houses became common property and any stranger who went inside made use of them as his own. Throughout the spring and summer of 1348, the toll of death went unabated. In Venice, some 90,000 died. In Florence, it was half the city's population. Such was the multitude of corpses brought to the churches every day and every hour that there was not enough consecrated ground to give them burial. With the cemeteries full, they were forced to dig huge trenches where they buried the bodies by their thousands. In Siena, near the famous Gothic cathedral, victims were thrown into pits in the foundations of the old city wall. Remarkably, they are still there today. As one chronicler of the time noted, More bodies were put on top of the corpses, with a little more dirt over those. Thus they put layer upon layer, just like one puts layers of cheese in a lasagna. In Milan, the fear of contagion fueled a brutal response. The city authorities ordered the houses of the sick to be locked and shuttered, leaving the victims inside to die. Everyone now believed that God was punishing the world. On the edge of the abyss, the rest of Europe braced itself, seeking answers. Could anything stop God's rage? But now, 
as the Black Death swept across Europe, the horror of the disease would be rivaled by the horror of man's own response. In six months, the Black Death had taken millions of lives and devastated Italy. Now, in the spring of 1348, it arrived in southern France. It's clear that the, the, the disease followed the routes of trade across Western Europe, which had become, by the 14th century, a pretty elaborate network run largely by Italians. And ironically, of course, it was from Italy that they exported very successfully the disease to other parts of Europe. In the coming months, fear of the Black Death would strike at the heart of the church, provoking bizarre rituals of penitence. But worse still, it would trigger ethnic hatred on a horrifying scale. The pestilence quickly spread inland to the papal seat of Avignon. It was here, rather than in Rome, that Pope Clement VI held court. Avignon was at this time a city drip-fed on religious power, patronage and diplomacy. It had, of course, at its heart the papal court, um, which was an enormous operation of some six or seven hundred people. But it was also, in effect, Europe's crossroads, a point where culture, politics, theology, art, science converged. The Pope was God's voice on earth. His court seethed with gossip and rumor. Surely religion would save them. In the court, Musician and philosopher Louis Heiligen began a unique account of the arrival and impact of the disease. The entire province is infected by these calamities. Sea fish are now not generally eaten, men believing that they have been poisoned by the infected air. And it is thought that the whole coast and all the neighboring countries caught the infection from the stinking breath of wind which blew from the region contaminated by the pestilence. Day by day, more and more people die. Now, by God's will, it has reached us. Like many devout and educated men, Heiligen believed the pestilence was a miasmic wind blown across the continent by a furious deity. Moral decay, it was reasoned, had brought such divine retribution. Really big diseases are God's business. He punishes Egypt with plagues. He punishes the Israelites with plagues. And so they will look for forms of pollution that aren't what we think of as pollution. Sinfulness, evil, moral pollution. It was surely a time to hold true to one's faith. The Pope declared that prayer, piety, and religious processions were the route to salvation and survival. But they didn't work. So many were dying that the Pope ordered huge new graveyards to be consecrated to bury the piles of rotting corpses. He even consecrated the Rhone so that bodies could be dumped in the river. In Avignon they buried 11,000 people in six weeks and they lost one-third of the cardinals and half the population. So clearly Avignon as the center or heart of Christianity hadn't been spared. Was the Catholic Church failing the devout? Some clearly thought so. 
an extraordinary movement of lay extremists now appeared. They were known as the Flagellants, and they directly challenged the authority of the church. We witnessed a performance of devout processions with the chanting of litanies. Men and women alike, many barefoot, others wearing hair shirts or smeared with ashes, processed with lamentations and tears. Some beat themselves with cruel whips until the blood ran. The flagellants marched from town to town, whipping themselves and others into a frenzy of brutal penitence. Watching one procession was Robert of Avesbury. Each wore a hood painted with a red cross front and back and carried a whip with three thongs. Each thong had a knot in it with something sharp, like a needle stuck through the middle. As they walked, they sang a Christian litany and one after the other, they struck themselves with these whips on their naked and bloody bodies. Contemporary observers talk about flagellants beating themselves and the blood spattering the walls of the surrounding buildings. What do people see when they look at a spectacle like that? Well, what they see is Jesus suffering and bleeding for their sins. What more powerful act can people have performed on their behalf to avert this terrible scourge that's coming to them? The theatrical ritual drew large crowds hoping for redemption. This sent shockwaves through the church. The church didn't like them at all because it was a lay movement and it was very much do-it-yourself Catholicism. And the last thing it wanted in the middle of a plague outbreak was a large group of nuts marching from town to town. And they thought they were insane. Religion was something the church dispensed through the priesthood, through the sacraments. And so they considered them extremely dangerous as well. But the promise of the flagellants proved empty and lethal. These bizarre marching mobs would simply have helped to spread the disease more quickly. After several months of horror, the city of Avignon, the religious heart of Europe, had become a ghost town. To be brief, at least half the people in Avignon died. There are now within the walls of the city more than 7,000 houses where no one lives because everyone in them has perished. And in the suburbs, one might imagine that there is not one survivor. In a bid to stay alive, the Pope put his own faith in a talented young doctor. His name was Guy de Choliac, and he became the papal surgeon at Avignon. The plague was shameful for the physicians, who could give no help at all, especially as out of fear of infection they shrank from visiting the sick. And even if they did, they achieved nothing and earned no fee, for all the sick died, save a very few. For previous plagues there were some remedies. For this one, nothing. De Choliac's story was remarkable. He contracted the disease whilst tending others. 
and for an agonizing six weeks, treated himself in sizing the buboes. His friends had left him for dead. But amazingly, he was one of the lucky ones to recover. De Choliac then worked tirelessly to try and unravel the nature of the disease. Carrying out autopsies, he was able to observe the infected lungs of victims, evidence, he maintained, of God's polluting miasma. Breathing is impaired. Men suffer in their lungs, and whoever has these corrupted cannot by any means escape, nor live beyond two days. De Choliac's accounts give a fascinating glimpse of the medieval symptoms of the disease. But even today, modern medicine can't explain what the Black Death actually was. Theories suggest a lethal hybrid of bubonic and hemorrhagic plague. But in truth, the disease remains a mystery. Nevertheless, as the most acute medical observer of the age, de Choliac knew it was spread by human contact. Accordingly, he advised the Pope. For prevention, the best cure was to flee the area before becoming infected, to thin the blood with bloodletting, to strengthen the heart with fruits and good-smelling things, and to purify the air with fire. The Pope did as he was told, isolating himself from court and servants between two great log fires. Guy de Choliac did give the Pope advice, we assume, uh, on a personal level about keeping himself out of harm's way as far as possible, keeping people who were, had contact with the disease away from the Pope, and he was lucky enough that none of his papal patients actually caught it. De Choliac had triumphed. The Pope rode out the Black Death and survived. But the same was not true for others. In a world seeking to appease God's fury, Christian tolerance crumbled as the community began a murderous purge. Neighbor turned on neighbor, seeking out scapegoats, heretics, outsiders, and the Jews. If you're convinced that God is angry at you, you look around and say, what has made God mad? Well, there can be few sins worse than denying what you understand to be the true God as the true God. And in their mind, that's what Jews were doing. The Jews were accused of plots to destroy all Christendom. In the spring of 1348, Jews from Narbonne and Carcassonne were dragged from their homes and burned at the stake. Some wretched men were found in possession of certain powders and whether justly or unjustly, God knows, were accused of poisoning the wells, with the result that anxious men now refused to drink the waters. Some of these men were burnt for this act and are being burnt daily, it being ordered that they should be punished thus. The brutal atrocities were recorded by the court bailiffs. 
Here follows the confession of one of the Jews made on the 8th of October, 1348, in the castle of Shillon. Belita, the wife of Aquitus the Jew, was put to question. Now, when it was over, she confessed that around Midsummer last, the Jew Provencal gave her some poison. She was to put this in the wells to poison the people using them. And she took the poison and did as she was told. Thousands of Jewish families were forced into false confessions. They were then condemned to death. Calamitous as it was, terrible as it was, the plague was not just a disaster. For some people it was an opportunity, an opportunity to do things that they'd been hoping for some time to be able to do. Now's their chance. Certain commissioners have been appointed to punish the Jews by due legal process. And you should know that all Jews living in Villeneuve have now been burnt. To put it at its most brutally simple, it was an opportunity for the many Christians who were in debt to Jewish moneylenders to liquidate their debts by liquidating their creditors. This was a planned process. It was led by the elite and in very many towns. The wiping out of the Jewish community happens before the plague ever arrives. In the three years of the Black Death, massacres of Jews took place in over 100 towns and cities in France, Italy, Switzerland and Germany. Europe lay morally derailed. In the late spring of 1348, the Pope's musician, Louis Heligan, penned a warning to colleagues in northern France. I am writing to you, most dearly beloved, so that you should know in what perils we are now living. And if you wish to preserve yourselves, the best advice is that a man should eat and drink moderately, but above all, mix little with people. It is best to stay at home until the epidemic has passed. But for Louis Heligan, it was too late. In July 1348, the Black Death claimed his life. With Europe riven by pogroms and by a universal crisis of faith, the pestilence now leapt the channel and invaded the pastoral lands of England. How would the feudal certainties of centuries now fare? Was the whole of Europe poised on the edge of anarchy? Across the continent, nearly half the population was dead. England waited, proud, religious, pastoral, feudal. Once again, the Black Death entered from the sea. In the summer of 1348, it arrived in the ports of Southampton, Plymouth and Bristol. It marched across a country where 90% of the people lived on the land. In England, servile peasants had worked their lord's estates for centuries, paying rent for their own small holdings. In the coming months, the carnage of the Black Death would transform this society in surprising ways. The 13th century had seen a steady rise in population. More and more marginal land was ploughed for grain. 
Now the land and the people were balanced precariously on a knife edge. Before the Black Death, life for peasants was pretty hard. They were living, large numbers of them, at a bare subsistence level. Many are living on very small holdings, scratching the existence out of the land. Rural England lay exposed and vulnerable. In the Suffolk village of Walsham the Willows lived a family called Denny's. Hear us, oh God. Nicholas Denny was married to Catherine. They had a young family. From statements and court records of the time, we can give them an authentic voice. Moving insights into how such peasant families were torn apart by the disease. By May 1349, the Black Death had arrived at their door. Death moved slowly at first, but once the kindling was lit, the blaze spread with such intensity it looked like no one would remain. My elder brother William was one of the first in our manor to succumb to the pestilence. He died within three days, followed by his wife and three of the children. He left to me his dwelling, seven and a half acres in the care of his remaining son. As death stalked the village, the tenancies of the deceased passed to the grief-stricken survivors. No one knew who would be next. Like those before them, the peasants believed the disease was born in corrupted air. With sweet-smelling herbs like thyme, tansy and wormwood, they tried in vain to purify their homes. But all they did was disguise the smell of death. My mother followed my brother to the grave very quickly. With my elder brother dead, my mother's five acres have gone to me. Catherine and I are now more than three times as rich as we were before this pestilence struck, but who knows how long that'll last. The other villagers avoid us. I think no family's infected. I wake early every morning with a dread that the swellings will have appeared on my children overnight. In a catastrophic few months, Walsham lost several hundred souls. Among them, the Lord of the Manor, leaving his widow, Lady Rose de Saxon, to cope with the crisis. Death took my good husband and killed more than a third of the men, women and children in the village. There is now such a shortage of servants, craftsmen and of agricultural labourers that a great many of us lords and those well endowed with goods and possessions are without all service and attendance. Across the board, it looks like half the population dying in England. You can look at the clergy because there's evidence for replacing those that died. And that looks like 40 to 50 percent. You can then look at individual villages and you can find some places with real horror. Jarrow, about 80% of the population died. The huge death toll among labourers paralysed rural life. Some villages were abandoned, farmsteads fell into ruin, and fields were left fallow. 
we've always got to remember the profoundly grief-stricken condition they must have been in after the Black Death, the awful darkness of those months when the, you know, the Black Death was carrying people off in, in their village, in their, in their town, wherever it might be. Um, but nevertheless, families like the Denny's, these peasant families, do get their act together pretty quickly. Land lying waste is committed to the village until another tenant can be found. Well, it's happening all over the manor. For those of us left alive, there is bounty. The world is changing. Gradually, the surviving peasants began to reap unforeseen advantages from death's vigor. They were in demand and could ask for higher wages and cheaper rents. Before the Black Death, uh, labor was plentiful, labor was cheap. After the Black Death, it was very, very difficult. You simply couldn't get people to come to do the jobs. You couldn't get people to uh, cut your corn, to thresh it. You couldn't find people to repair your roof unless you paid them two or three or even four times the wages you'd paid them before. Across the land, agricultural laborers threw off the shackles of the past. The old order of the English landscape was changing. I've heard from the next parish that 12 laborers, women and men, have abandoned their lord for higher wages elsewhere. The jury's found them in contempt of the king, but they're long gone. The law will not catch up with them. The feudal certainties were crumbling. The bonds of service were being strained to breaking point. The establishment itself was under threat. I have suffered unbearably at the hands of my laborers. Well, this want is strongly felt both in my manor and throughout the whole of England, among lords and clergy alike. Because of it, the leading men of the kingdom appeared before the king and asked for some remedy for these problems to be ordained. Runaway wages were bad news, and King Edward III's response was astonishingly swift. In 1349, as the pestilence raged, he commanded that workers accept wages at their 1346 levels. It was a sign of just how rattled the establishment felt. Commissions were set up around the country, fining people who were charging over the odds for their labor. But the laws of supply and demand proved too strong. The Black Death was forcing social and economic change on an unwilling ruling class. But those at the bottom of the heap sniffed opportunity and a new age. This is a political threat to the whole sort of ordering of society. This is more than just, I'm not going to get enough money this year. This is, you know, potentially very destabilizing to the political system, really, in medieval England. Despite the best efforts of king and country to stop it, the Black Death had caused the world to move on. Autumn of 1350, after three years of terror and 20 million lives, the Black Death had reached the edges of 14th century Europe. Death's vigor would soon fade, but not before visiting one last haunting and prophetic witness. Brother John Clynn, a Franciscan friar in Ireland, believed the day of judgment had come. 
struggling against the sickness that gripped him, he made one final amazing gesture. I, Brother John Clinn of the Friars Minor of Kilkenny, have written in this book of the notable events which befell in my time, so that such deeds should not perish with time, or be lost from the memory of future generations. I leave parchment for continuing the work, in case anyone should be alive in the future, and any son of Adam can escape this pestilence and continue the work thus begun. But the pages deliberately left blank by the dying John Clinn came to represent much more than a space on which to record the final days of humanity. For this was not the story that followed. For the surviving sons of Adam, the disease was finally waning. The war was over. Brother Clinn's new page was in fact a clean slate on which a new history would be written. In the decades after the Black Death, recurring bouts of pestilence struck again and again. But the resilience of medieval Europe would now reveal itself in fascinating ways. The remarkable thing about the Black Death is, after the first shock of 1348, people got used to the Black Death. We looked into the abyss and we have survived. And plagues come back every 10 years, but we survive them too. And so there's, I think, a tremendous energy in the late 14th century, which is a kind of joie de vivre, which is expressed in painting and in poetry. Learning to live with the disease was a challenge that medieval men and women now took upon themselves. In painting and storytelling, there was an extraordinary flourishing of macabre art. Pictures in which people were encouraged to engage with the horrors of death and decay. Art does seem to change as a result of the Black Death. The portrayal of effigies as skeletal or with worms coming out of them. A healthy woman and a skeleton right behind her. These become more common. The Black Death reminded them that it did hit everyone that death was everyone's companion throughout their life. And that's why you get these etchings of the skeleton behind you, because that, in a sense, is the way you're thinking now. Death is your constant companion. It was a message portrayed in many English parish churches in the late 14th and 15th centuries. At Lutterworth Church in Leicestershire, the dead rise to the call of trumpets from heaven. The images show that death is inevitable, but also the ecstasy of eternal resurrection. Ironically, in the medieval world, it was pictures of the dead that helped teach the survivors how to live. In villages like Walsham the Willows, surviving peasants like the Denny's family were coming to terms with the new world. Lady Rose has now waived 12 pennies from each acre, which used to cost us two shilling. Till the world improves, or another tenant can be found who is prepared to pay the full rent. So, we have more land and yet pay less. The mistress needs us more than we need her. 
There are groups of peasants that say, look, we're not accepting things as they were before because the situation's changed. I'm sorry, we've got greater bargaining power, so therefore we demand more. We don't want to perform these forced labour services. We want to work for higher wages. We want to be able to go to other villages to take on other holdings, whatever it might be. Many survivors from the countryside were also drawn to the towns and cities, filling the vacuum left by the urban dead. It's not only our wealth has improved. The chaos the pestilence has brought has opened up opportunities. My sister Agnes, strong-willed, has abandoned the land of Our Lady and fled to Ipswich, where she has married a cobbler without the lady's license. They do not know his name. So it seems she will escape. For those peasants who'd made it through, life was better. The same could not be said for the landowners. My buildings and walls are crumbling, and the manor barely yielded ten pounds last year. No labourer is prepared to take orders from anyone, whether equal, inferior or superior. And all those who serve do so with ill will and a malicious spirit. In 1353 in Walsham Manor, 55 labourers, men and women, even went on strike. There were landlords that were trying to keep things as they had been in the past. This was much resented, and one can see uh, the origins of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 in the dissatisfaction of a populace that felt itself deprived of the opportunities that they could see available to them. English peasants were flexing their muscles in a society relieved of the shackles and certainties of the High Middle Ages. In some ways, the birth of the modern world can be traced to the Black Death, I think, because it marked definitively the end of the idea that you are forever fixed in one social identity. The next century became a golden age for the English labourer. Serfdom gradually withered away. On the continent, too, the survivors of the Black Death were also writing new chapters in human history. Giovanni Boccaccio, Guy de Chauliac, and Gabriel de Musis among them. As Europe rebounded, millions bequeathed by the dead were spent on rebuilding. The peasants restarted work on their famous icon, completing the bell tower in 1350. It was a time to look forward, not back. In 1350, the Pope calls a jubilee, which encourages all pilgrims to come to Rome. So again, thousands of medieval pilgrims are on the roads. You'd think that would be the last thing you'd want to do after a plague, but they do. It's very regenerative. In the narrow streets of the Italian cities, where the Black Death had first stalked, there was a gradual reawakening. For the next hundred years, Renaissance men found new pride in the classical roots of European culture. There was a huge outpouring of creativity in the fields of architecture, literature, art and science. Ideas that celebrated the spirit of man in his world. It had been the worst century to be alive and no other age before or since had felt so close to annihilation. But the people of medieval Europe had not lost their nerve.
One of the healthiest conclusions is to remind ourselves that Europe survived the Black Death. It survived recurring outbreaks for 300 years of plague. And I think that's a very good conclusion to get out of it, is the resilience of, of the human spirit in the face of this sort of appalling adversity. Slowly, an inspiring story of human survival was emerging. From the brink of the apocalypse, a new vision of hope and humanity had been wrested from despair.